all of these problems right now are getting a light shown on them brightly, so brightly that we can't ignore it anymore, you know? And, and I think the Alice, the Alice report came out at the perfect time because it's, we're seeing that light being shown on them and we can say, look, here's the data to back it up. This isn't a one-off thing. This has been going on and what can we do to fix it? Welcome to the Unleashed Generosity Podcast, exploring the intersection of faith, service, philanthropy, and community. I'm your host, Aaron Scott. Thanks for listening in. Uh, As I record this introduction, we're just over three weeks after the murder of George Floyd, and I've just kind of been stuck trying to figure out what to say. And I, I don't have the words, there are no words, to kind of properly express the outrage and the heartbreak that's going on right now in our communities, um, and particularly amongst our brothers and sisters of color. Um, And so I've been trying to do not a lot of talking, which doesn't make for a great introduction to a podcast to just kind of sit in silence. But one of the voices that I've been trying to listen to, in addition to some of the neighbors and people of color that I know here in my own community and people that I've gotten to know just throughout my life, is Ibram X. Kendi, who wrote the book How to Be an Anti-Racist, as well as Stamped. And uh, if you haven't heard it, he has a great interview on Brene Brown's podcast, Unlocking Us, where they talk about the idea of racist, um, which is obviously a very loaded term. Um, But I found his distinction where he talks about you can be racist or anti-racist, but you can't, there's no such thing as not racist. Uh, But the hopeful and powerful thing that he says is that, you know, all of us have the opportunity to move move towards being an anti-racist. Being racist is not a fixed position. If we make a choice to be anti-racist, we could also later in the day make a different choice to, to, to say something racist or to support a policy that's racist. And so it, it, it's kind of hopeful in that none of us are labeled. We continuously have the opportunity to live into being our better selves, if you will, by the choices that we make throughout our days and throughout our lives. But But he also goes on to say, but part of the beginning of becoming anti-racist and promoting a world of justice and equality is acknowledging the ways in which we've been racist. We can't just kind of pretend that everything's okay. Um, and, And I make a similar comment at the end of this episode where I say, you know, I'm talking about fundraising and I'm talking about things in response to COVID and how we kind of create the world that we want there to be instead of the world that we're in. And that's why his comments really resonated with me is that it begins with all of us looking in the mirror. And and so I find that to be a powerful thing that change really begins with me. You know, change begins with each of us examining our own choices and our own actions. It's important to note before I introduce today's guest that um, today's guest 
you know, is not an individual of color. And the focus of the conversation is not racial justice issues specifically. This conversation was recorded back in April. And so I, I recognize there's the opportunity for the episode to come across as sort of tone deaf by not specifically addressing racial justice issues. And my goal isn't to be dismissive or ignore those issues. And those will be issues that we talk about specifically with people of color in future episodes. But Today's conversation does focus on some issues that intersect with racial justice issues. Um, we talk about imbalances of power when we talk about child abuse. We talk about systemic poverty. I'm excited to introduce you to my guest, a friend, Leslie Salling, who is the Director of Resource Development at United Way of Washington County, Tennessee. We worked on the same fundraising team at ETSU, fundraising for different health science colleges. Um, and so we've known each other for quite a while. She talks about lots of different groups that she's been involved with. She talks about her passion for serving others and kind of how she got into nonprofit. And uh, I think you'll really enjoy this wide ranging conversation. And I'm grateful that I had the chance to share it with Leslie. Hey, Leslie, welcome to the Unleashed Generosity podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, just give us a little bit of background. Okay. Well, I didn't ever think I would be in the nonprofit world. Um, I always say I kind of got thrown into it on accident. So I, my degree is actually in journalism, and I wanted to be an attorney. And so when I moved to Tennessee, I was trying to find something that I could um, just kind of get into the legal field. So I found CASA, which is Court Appointed Special Advocates, and started out as a volunteer. So I got to investigate um, child abuse cases and then bring those facts to the court um, so that judge, the judge could make a well-rounded decision, a better decision on what was going on with that child, what they needed, um, and how to proceed in the case. And then one of the coordinators approached me about a uh, position um, and I thought, wow, I could get paid to do this. Uh, so I took that job and ended up being the director for four years and um, was with CASA for eight years. So it was a lot of fun. It introduced me to the nonprofit world, which I knew nothing about at the time um, and then knew a lot about when I left there. We met in my job after that, which was ETSU, where um, we were both directors of development. Mm-hmm. which was a whole new, interesting job. Yeah, just getting to focus just on fundraising and not have to wear all the hats that you wore as the nonprofit executive director. Exactly. And that's, I needed a break. I needed to be, just have a break and not have to do everything. And it was yeah. nice to focus on one area and be really good at that area. But after that job, after three years, I was excited to get back to the um, kind of boots on the ground nonprofit world. And so I found the job at United Way as Director of Resource Development, which is basically fundraising. And I also do the marketing there. So you talked about it was kind of enticing when you moved from volunteer role with CASA into like getting paid. And I thought that that was a funny thing. You don't hear people often say, oh, I went to work for a nonprofit because I, you know, I get paid so much. But I guess if you were volunteering, any amount you were getting yeah. was more than nothing. So that was good. It was, yeah, I was, I had such a fun time as a volunteer um, and I was in the market for a job anyways. I think substitute teaching. I did that. Yep. 
half-life. <laughs> I try to block those days out sometimes. but Right. So I thought, well, I can get paid to, I mean, it was very minimum. I, sure. I will admit that um, to do something that I was volunteering with already or yeah. continue to substitute teach. So it was, it was not so much the money, but just the opportunity was really enticing. I mean, why did you start volunteering with them in the first place? What was appealing to you about that particular organization or were you just bored or, I mean, you, you weren't bored because you have kids. So <laughs> kind of been too bored. Yeah. With three boys, you can never be bored, but uh, no, it was a mix between my journalism degree and wanting to go to, into the legal field. So one of the jobs of the volunteer was to write a report. So you did the investigation, you interviewed everybody involved with the case, and then you went back and you wrote a report that went to the judge, just telling what you found, which is how my journalism training had been. And that's the kind of writing I enjoyed at the time. So, and then I also got to have the legal piece of it, which was being involved with the courts and getting to see the court hearings and interact with the attorneys and that side of things. So those two combinations was just right down my alley. Sure. So it was kind of a combination of interest and what you felt like your skills were, which I think is how a lot of volunteers get started with an organization. You know, you worked with them for eight years. So what started as just volunteering uh, became a pretty significant part of your experience. So you had that experience, a nonprofit that's related to children's services and related to the legal system, mm-hmm. uh, criminal justice system. But then when you transitioned to ETSU, what was yeah. that shift like? That was an interesting shift. So I only had one thing to focus on. I was able to focus on learning the healthcare side of it. The College of Nursing, they have tons of programs within that college. Um, and then I think there was what seven programs with clinical health sciences. So there was a lot, um, but it, I liked I liked the change up. Um, my family has a you know I have aunt and uncle that are both doctors, and so I kind of have been around it a little bit. Yeah. But I mean, it was fun to learn for sure. Yeah, cool. Our College of Nursing has a lot of. I mean, they provide a lot of uncompensated or very low compensated care to to people across Northeast Tennessee, um, not just mm-hmm. in Washington County, but at multiple nurse-run clinics. So I imagine being able to fundraise for that and to kind of say like the dollars that we're raising make a real practical difference in people's lives. Yeah. And I think that was really important to me because I had definitely had jobs before CASA that were so aggravating because None of it mattered to me. Like I worked for a company that made sinks and they, you know, sold, made and sold sinks, the kitchen sinks. And to me, when people would call and get upset about their sink, I thought, who cares? You know, (laughs) who cares? It's a sink. You know, of course it meant a lot to them in the moment, but um, I had gone through several jobs like that. Hmm. before I got to CASA. So after I had worked to CASA, I don't think, unless I work for myself at some point, which will still probably be in the service area, mm-hmm. I just don't think I, I, I wouldn't be able to go to a retail type corporate company. Hmm. So you kind of feel like you've gotten bit by the service bug? Like if you're going to be spending 
40 hours a week, 60 hours a week, however many, depending on how busy the week is, you want to be spending those hours doing something you feel like is making a difference in people's lives. Yeah, I think helping people is just, I mean, and I never really knew that's the route I would take. I never, I grew up in a military family, so we did some of that stuff to a certain extent, but my parents were never, I think I saw it more as that's just part of my dad's job, that he helps out with certain things and were part of that, but I never saw it as, I never saw my parents as very philanthropic, so I didn't grow up with that. So I never really was exposed to a lot of that other than some stuff with the church. We did, you know, I did grow up in church, but I never realized that that is the route I would take or that's what I would want to do or that that would even mean anything to me at all. I mean, what's the underlying sort of why for you? What's the, I mean, is is it a religious conviction? Is it just sort of a, a value or moral um, sort of feeling or like, what's the underlying thing that you feel like drives you to want to do what you do? I think all of that. Like I said, I grew up in church. So we, you know, we gave back in those settings. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, as I've gotten older, I've gotten a little bit away from those kind of strict church religious, I don't don't know the word for it, you know, like you have to do this because you're a Christian. It's more of a, I'm doing it because I'm part of a bigger piece of the world. I mean, we're all connected in a sense of we're all human and we're all part of this world. Just kind of more transition to a humanitarian perspective rather than a religious perspective. I think it it started, the basis was religion, you know, and the Bible. And I, you know, that's definitely, I still believe that and, you know, depend on that. But I think as I've gotten older, it's become more of a universal humanitarian plight than anything else. Sure. Yeah. And there's, I don't know that there's a right answer to that question. Um, (laughs) As you know, I like answer asking questions that don't have simple answers. So, um, (laughs) which is, I mean, but that's part of what I think was what interested me in trying to start the podcast is not Mm -hmm. to talk about like, fundraising or nonprofit organizations and like how do you set up a board or how do you make an ask or how do you steward a a gift that you've received like the nuts and bolts of how to do these things there are other people out there that can talk about that but I'm kind of interested in talking to people about why they do what they do and I think that why for people it might be similar but people might have a powerful experience they had growing up that they are passionate about that cause because they were touched by an organization that helped them or, you know, it could just be, like you said, it's part of their journey. Um, and so mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've found those parts of the conversations with some of the guests so far to be the most interesting. Yeah. And I, I mean, we found a lot of our CASA volunteers had, a lot of them were teachers mm-hmm. and saw abused and neglected children, you know, in their yeah. classroom and were really limited on what they could do you know, in their role as a teacher. And then we, so, and then some of them had experienced abuse and neglect. And I think eventually, you know, I had the experience of being in an abusive relationship Mm. when I, my first husband, I haven't quite gotten to the point where I'm putting all my effort into the domestic violence Mm -hmm. side of things. Um, Definitely the virus, this virus and being, having to stay home and the safer home order has definitely made me think about it a little bit more. 
because I can't even imagine being in that position that I was in and then being in this position of having to be home with him and in that situation. Um, And United Way serves, we help one of the domestic violence shelters here and they've had to, they're so overcrowded that they've had to um, rent out hotel rooms for the families because they're just, there's too many people at the shelter. They've pretty much tripled what they seen at the shelter. And then they've, she said, I think six times, they get six times as many calls as they used to before all this happened. So, And which shelter is that or which? That's um, Frontier Health Safe House. Wow. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm sure the other shelters are experiencing. Oh, yeah. I think we have three or four here and I'm sure they're experiencing the same thing. I've just talked to her since United Way supports them. But so I think eventually I'll probably help in that area because I've kind of thought it a, a lot about it more being in the situation that we're in, but I'm just not sure how to do that yet. I did serve on a board of the Safe Harbor Home in Greenville mm-hmm. um, who they were trying to get a um, shelter there because Greenville does not have a shelter mm-hmm. or they didn't four or five years ago. I'm not sure if they do now. Yeah, the amount of information about implications of the COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic is just overwhelming sometimes. And if you're like me, at times it's just like, okay, I want to learn more about that and that. And and sometimes it's just kind of overwhelming, like to think about from a humanitarian perspective and the economic impact and the the local impact and how families are being affected and businesses. And it's just, you know, sometimes it's just all too much. But that is one thing I've read a few articles about is just how um, you're talking about, you know, uh, families that are in abusive situations. A lot of times, when kids are in abusive situations, like those those cases are being identified in the schools. So if they're not in schools and after school programs like Coalition for Kids or whatever, then they're not going to be exposed to those other people who may identify some of those problematic uh, warning signs or red flags. Mm-hmm. I'm sure hundreds of thousands of cases nationwide of of more abuse and neglect going on, there's not an easy, what do you do about that? There isn't. Um, I was talking to one of the after-school providers yesterday, and we have a meeting with all of them in the area to help them figure out how to open. I mean, so their problem is that they can open under CDC guidelines. There's certain things they have to do it's a matter of having the resources to do it. Like they really need a nurse at the site to check everybody coming in. They need enough thermometers. They need enough um, special protection equipment. They need the resources. But what if one of the kids gets sick? Because most of these people, most of the kids that are going to come to these, we're talking about opening for summer programs. Because most of the kids coming into these summer programs are probably, their parents are probably working. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, she was saying, okay, so I open it up to 50 kids. How do I choose those 50 kids? Well, they're probably going to be the 50 kids that need it the most. The ones that are in abusive situations, the ones yeah. that are, aren't getting fed. Okay. Well, those 50 kids are the pro- ones that are probably can't pay. So how do we keep our doors open? Yeah. <clears throat> so there's that. And then, you know, these kids, there are some kids, I mean, thousands of kids that they're at a before school program, then they go to school and then they're in the after school program 
they're somewhere other than their home from 6.30 in the morning to 7 at night. Yeah. Like there's thousands of kids and, and now they're at home. And when you take away the feeding sites with the schools, which yeah. they're not, you know, right now the um, state and federal, they're getting money to feed the children. And it's not that they want to stop feeding them. They're going to stop having the money to pay for it. Right. So these after-school programs are trying to step up to do it. Yeah. And then, like you said, that's at least another set of eyes on these kids right. to make sure everything's okay. So there's just, there's just a lot that goes into it. You know, do you open up and potentially have the virus run through one of these after-school programs? Or do you stay closed and have hundreds of kids in abusive situations, potentially? And and I think that's something that as we're reassessing, you know, how we respond to a pandemic, you know, obviously me working with public health, I know that our College of Public Health, we're reaching out to our alumni who are on the front lines Mm -hmm. serving in response to say, thank you for all you're doing. Um, Mm -hmm. Thank you for your service. Um, Thank you for your heart and commitment, but also like give us some feedback. Mm -hmm. You know, when you get a minute to breathe, tell us what you feel like we did well to train you because we need to be constantly evaluating what we don't do well. Like, where are the gaps in, in our preparation mm-hmm. and our training? And I think the nonprofit sector as a whole and really society as a whole, we're having this opportunity to kind of assess like, wow, we didn't realize that gap was there. We, we are realizing the value of nonprofit organizations and how important they are and how much our society relies upon them, particularly for people who are the most vulnerable. But then when we switch the paradigm and we can't operate normally, we realize just where some of these gaps are and just how huge they are. And so I hope that, you know, we'll have policy leaders, we'll have community leaders, we'll have nonprofit leaders, we'll have business leaders talking about things like philanthropy. How do we use dollars that are donated more effectively to make sure that we're actually building resilient structures so that the next Mm -hmm. time we have a change to the way things work, we're not kind of caught in a horrible situation where we're not able to adapt and and sort of be nimble. Talk a little bit about this United Way Regional Response Fund, because that's one thing that did not exist six weeks ago when this pandemic first broke out. And that's one of the ways in which United Way is really trying to be nimble and kind of say like, look, we have our business as usual and we know what it's like to try to help our organizations do their day-to-day operations. But right now things aren't business as usual and we've got to think creatively about how to get dollars in the hands of the people on the front lines to be able to respond. Yeah, so when we first started talking about this fund, our board pretty much asked us why, you know, why do we, why do we need to do extra work? And our response as staff was, there's only four of us as, as staff at United Way of Washington County. We do not have the, even though we have a really cool United Way bus, um, you know, we have some other resources. We don't have the resources to do what our nonprofit partners are doing. Yeah. We can't respond to the 
hundreds and hundreds of, of calls coming into 211 for resources. We can't go out and feed thousands of children. I mean, we don't have the capacity to do that as staff, but we do have the capacity and the knowledge and expertise to fundraise. So yeah. let us fundraise, let us raise the money while they do the work. That way they can do the work, they can do, put the extra work in, they can get out there and not have to worry about where that extra funding is coming from or how to, you know, keep their doors open. Yeah. Let us do the, play that role and be that for our nonprofit partners and they can do the work. Right. Cause so, you don't want to duplicate efforts. And no. like you said these organizations have years of expertise. They know how to do their service better than anybody else, but they're going to have to adapt. Sure. But they, they just need more resources to figure out how to pivot. Well, let, let's back up. So it's, this isn't just the United way of Washington County, Jonesboro, Johnson city. These are the United ways all across our region and Northeast Tennessee and Southwest Virginia are coming together as a regional umbrella to, and they've created a COVID-19 emergency response fund. Yeah, so we have two funds. We have the Washington County Fund, which is more for individuals in Washington County that want to give local, make sure their money stays local, stays in Washington County. Then we, then bigger businesses like Ballad that have a bigger footprint, Food City, um, WJHL, WCYB, uh-huh. um, Eastman, they said, we need somewhere to give. And that's when the 79 ways got together and said, okay, again, we have the capacity to fundraise, to disperse money, to handle that side of it. That's our, that's what we, we do every single day. Yeah. And so we said, let's get together one place to give and it can go to the entire region. So we do have, we each have our own. So we see a lot of individuals giving to the local ones And then we see the bigger corporations that are able to give huge, like Eastman Credit Union gave the 35,000. And, you know, we could, we each got over 1,400 Food City gift cards to give out. So those are the bigger projects that we can do as a region. Well, that's great. So gifts into these funds, whether it's the, whether it's the regional one or the one that's specifically for United Way here in Washington County, Tennessee, either one of those are tax deductible gifts, right? Yes. So we spoke with the chambers when they started this um, small business fund. And as United Ways, we can't give to individuals or necessarily to businesses. We give to nonprofits. So 501c3s. So when the chambers came to us about this other fund, we said, yes. I mean, not that we could tell them what to do, but it was reaching a whole nother population that we couldn't reach with our fund. Yeah. Even though ours is tax deductible, you know, and theirs is not, it's still coming together as a community to help people. And so we were excited that they were able to help that set of small businesses, of individuals that we couldn't necessarily help as a united way. Yeah. And as yeah. I said in my conversation with them, it, it's not an either or. I mean, both are valid. Yeah. And it's been great to see new things like 
this fund that you all have established didn't exist six or seven weeks ago. The region ahead thing didn't exist six or seven weeks ago. And there's obviously grassroots kinds of things happening through individual churches. You know, mm-hmm. ETSU established our Bucks Help Bucks initiative mm-hmm. to help employees, students, you know, so there's a lot of creativity happening. We can put a, a link in the show notes, but how does somebody go about making a gift to one of these funds if they're interested in doing that? The um, regional fund is NETN, so Northeast Tennessee, SWVA, Southwest Virginia, um, relieffund.org. Okay. And that's the regional one. Um, We're also about to link a blog to that, which will have stories of how the fund has helped individuals and families. Yeah, that's great. Um, Then our um, local one, Washington County, is... um, UW, so United Way, OWC of WashingtonCounty.org. So UWOWC.org. And then you can find it at the top there, or you can go to slash COVID-19 is the um, extension to it. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Obviously, by the time this airs, there'll be some lag time when I edit. But do you have any numbers about what the fundraising has been like so far for those different funds? Yeah. So for the um, local fund, we've given out $33,000 and it's helped over 15,000 people in Washington County. Like that money just came into you all and then was dispersed to different nonprofits? Right. And that's the other thing about this diff being different. Um, our regular campaign, we take administrative costs off the top, which is, a, we only have a 5% cost for admin, which is so it's a small amount, but this one is no, we don't take anything off. We're volunteering our time, our administrative efforts, everything. That's really powerful to hear that a hundred percent of the dollars that come in are actually going straight to organizations. Um, have you, have you heard a number for the regional response in terms of numbers of dollars donated? So the last I heard, which was last week, was um, 365000 That's amazing. So, I mean, we've had some corporations really step up. A lot of the banks are giving to that fund. Um, and awesome. like I said, Eastman, bigger, bigger organizations like that. So those funds are coming in and then are they being kind of equally divided amongst the very, the seven United ways? So some of them have um, told us how they want to divide it. Sure. For instance, food city um, gave a certain amount sort of to each, depending on the size of that County. So one of the United ways we're partnering with is United way, Southwest Virginia, and they serve 14 counties in Southwest Virginia. It's a huge- so, yeah, so some of the um, corporations have kind of separated their donation as far as Southwest Virginia, Tennessee type thing. Sure. Um, so it just kind of depends on how people give. You can go into the regional fund and select a county. So we've gotten some donations just for Washington County from individuals that way. If it's just to the regional fund, they haven't given us any specifications and we just split it equally. It's it's great to see people stepping up and wanting to help. And in some ways, it's natural for people to want to see the impact of their investment as close to them as possible. And the goal, obviously, is to make sure less and less people, as few people as possible, slip through the cracks. Um, and that's kind of the, the last thing I wanted to touch on is, is another resource that you all have provided in terms of a report that 
that United Way has conducted, um, not just here in Washington County, but this is a report called the ALICE Report. Can you tell us what, what does ALICE stand for? Yeah, so ALICE is an acronym for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed. Um, and basically, we're talking about the working poor. So these are people who don't fall under the poverty line. So they're not considered in poverty. Yeah. But they're pretty much one emergency away from falling into poverty. Yeah. So they're just kind of walking on that tightrope where one flat tire, one medical bill, unexpected medical bill, any, you know, they, they're not saving. They don't have the means to do that. It's that population, but they make too much to get federal aid or state aid, but they're working usually one or two, usually two or three jobs. Um, And these are the people we're seeing that are essential workers now. Sure. I mean, the, the report it was done statewide. It was done by our state United Way. Um, we helped fund it. Each county helped fund it. Uh-huh. And they looked at this population of people working paycheck to paycheck, don't have any assets, but are, t- but are making too much to receive benefits from the government. And in Washington County, and this is Typical across the state until you get into some of the bigger cities. 15% of our county is poverty. So those are the people who are getting government assistance. They're living in poverty. So 30% of the residents in Washington County are Alice. So they're right above the poverty line. And that puts us at um, 45% of the population in Washington County is barely getting by. And then you throw in a pandemic (laughs) and people losing their jobs. And I, I mean, I guarantee you that number has risen. I guarantee you a lot of those Alice families have fallen into poverty right now. I mean, I would be, uh, there's no way they're not. That report was, this report was conducted, it's been conducted multiple times, right, to get the figure. So there was data from 2010, sort of closer to the end of the recession, and the number of individuals in poverty in Washington County was 17%. It was done again in 2012, 2014, and 2017, and the numbers of folks in poverty were 17%. 15%, 16%, 15%. So we're not really seeing a decline, even though the economy and the, the figures we hear in the national conversation in the news is that things are going well. We're at 4% unemployment. The economy is strong. People are doing well. Yet we see that poverty number flat. So we're not really seeing an increase in people who are in poverty being able to get out of poverty. But then the more troubling number is, as you say, is the Alice numbers, which are not, this isn't from starting at zero up. This is on top of that 17% in 2010, there was another 16% that fell in that just getting by, but making too much the working poor. And those numbers went 2010, it was 16%. 2012, it went up to 22%. 2014, it was 22%. And as you said, in 2017, it was up to 30%. And 
And so that is striking to me from just a, like you said earlier, a humanitarian or a public policy perspective to Mm -hmm. say, when our economy is doing good, these numbers should be going down. Mm -hmm. And so something's wrong here in terms of the way that wealth is being distributed. There's a lot of names for it, I guess. And I'm not trying to be inherently political, but I just, it's striking when you look at the report to say in a time when the United States was, had a healthy economy, these are the, these are the trends that we saw. The people who were in poverty were flat, not, not decreasing. And the people who were falling in this at risk category actually increased. Yeah. So here's what the gap that we're seeing um, is you have, and, and again, United Way doesn't get, well, our United Way doesn't get political, but <laughs> <laughs> let me just say that. We're here to cause trouble. Now's yeah. a good time to remind everyone that I don't speak on behalf of East Tennessee State University either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So here's, but, but here's the reality of what we're seeing. We're seeing the cost of living going up because of natural inflation. Yeah. And the minimum wage is not catching up to that fast enough. It's flat, which is right. to the gap. Yeah. Right. So you have the, you know, you have the cost of living going up, even in our area, which we have a very low cost of living here compared to a lot of the nation. But when you're not raising minimum wage, that gap is just going to continue to widen. I mean, there's no, I mean, that's just numbers. That's not political. That's not, mm-hmm. you know, an opinion. That That's the reality of what happens when your house payment and the food at the grocery store, when those prices raise, but your, the amount you make at your essential job, janitors, uh, you know, our grocery store workers, even our nurses, yeah. when those wages don't increase with the cost of living, all that's going to do, that gap will just widen. It'll continue to widen. Yeah. And yeah. the Alice number will continue to increase. And again, the, the numbers, like, we'll, we'll link to both the Washington County data, but this was done for every county across the state of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as, as we know from looking at how did the economy recover, we know that in our region, North of Tennessee, we have not, we basically just gotten back to the pre-2008 recession levels. We haven't really exceeded beyond that. Whereas some of the larger metro areas like mm-hmm. Davidson County, Nashville, Knoxville, uh, Hamilton County, Chattanooga, some of those larger metro areas recovered the the you know they got back to where they were prior to the recession and then because the economy has been so strong those regions have benefited economically and there has been economic growth and prosperity there whereas we have not seen that so it becomes also sort of an analysis of thinking about how do we think about life in rural america and how do we set forth policies that help us all thrive? And, and again, I'm not saying this to be critical of one administration or the other, because you could say part of that time was the Obama administration, mm-hmm. part of that time was the Trump yeah. administration. But the reality is that 
now is a time after a crisis where we have the opportunity to say, okay, what has worked well and what hasn't worked well? If we keep doing the same things we've been doing, it would be insane to expect different results. So now's a perfect time just to be honest, like you said, and look at just the facts. They're objective facts. We have close to half of the people in Washington County are either poor and receiving government assistance or another 30% on top of that as of 2017 that had not benefited from the economic recovery and were still at risk. And now because of this pandemic, a lot of them have been sliding down into that poverty category. What do we need to do to make sure that we're making those numbers shrink in the next 10 years when the economy does recover? Yeah, and so you're right. I mean, this isn't one administration doing something that has magically made this happen. This has been a long time coming. This is years and years piling on top of each other. Um, There's a really good book out right now called Tightrope. Um, And I cannot think of the authors, but they're a married couple that are um, journalists, like award-winning journalists. And he's from a very small town in Oregon. And if you take that town, you could put it anywhere here in Appalachia. And it, I mean, it's the same. It's farmers. It's, they have a bit of a city. Um, and he based the book on the fact that, um, say he was in, went to Lamar Elementary School and rode the bus with 20 kids. 10 of those kids are either drug addicted or dead right now. They're in their 40s. And, you know, half of the kids on that bus never made it never made it out of the town, never made it past any kind of drug addiction or, you know, dying of whatever, heart disease, whatever it is. So these problems have compounded on each other. And part of it is being in a rural setting. All of these problems right now are getting a light shown on them brightly, so brightly that we can't ignore it anymore, you know? And, and I think the Alice, the Alice report came out at the perfect time because it's, we're seeing that light being shown on them. And we can say, look, here's the data to back it up. This isn't a one-off thing. This has been going on. And what can we do to fix it? So, I mean, in any problem, if you have multiple reasons why it's happened, which that book tightrope really explains it well, as far as how problems, how the multiple areas have compounded into this huge issue, you're not going to have one solution to fix it. I mean, you're going to have to come at it from multiple angles. And, you know, like you said, from the public health angle, we're going to have to come at it from the political angle. We're going to have to come at it from the grassroots. Let's be innovative. Let's figure out how we can all come together as a region angle. You know, you have to come at it as as many angles as cause the problem. Yeah. And so if if folks were under the illusion because the economy was improving and because maybe I'm doing well or the people that I interact with are doing well, the report is a tremendous tool because it provides a reality check on the fact that even though things were good for some, things were not good for everybody. Yeah. And so it, it's a reminder that the need is still great. And now the need's going to be greater than it was, you know, prior to March and the Mm -hmm. stock market downturn and all that. And, and I don't, you know, that we'll unpack a lot of different types of conversations with different people 
you know, over the course of this podcast, you know, so you could go to, you know, I can mention public policy in a very broad sort of statement and people will say, well, yeah, but, you know, loss of manufacturing jobs or this or that. There's a lot of policy decisions and they're very complicated and they're interrelated. Um, so I don't make mean to make it sound simple, like you just flip a switch from doing A to B and then all of a sudden everything is solved. But like you said, the report is a tool that allows us to at least look in the mirror and say, look, mm-hmm. this is where we're at. And there's an awful lot of people interested in blaming the other side, blaming people who have a different political background than they do, people who they see as their opponent or their enemy. I'm not at all interested in blaming. Um, I'm really interested in talking with people about what is the work you do? Why do you think it's important? And and what can we do to do more of that good work to help us all thrive? Um, And so I'm much more interested in solutions and I feel like this report is something that was really important to talk about because it does just what you said. It shines a light on the reality of where we're at and it allows us to look in the mirror and say, look, this is who we are. Mm-hmm. This is the society we've created by the choices we've made and what we've invested in. Are we, are we okay with that? Is this who we want to be? And if the answer is no, then we have to be willing to acknowledge that we're going to have to make changes and we're going to have to have honest and frank conversations about what do those changes look like. And one of the ways that, you know, as a fundraiser and somebody who's worked in the nonprofit sector, and I I know your heart's in the same place, is we want to make sure that when dollars are donated to our organizations, that they're being used as effectively as possible to Mm -hmm. actually help people. And so I think we as nonprofit leaders and fundraisers and people in philanthropy, we need to look in the mirror too and say, have we been doing the things that we need to be doing? Or have we been fundraising for things that maybe aren't the most pressing needs in our communities? Yeah, donors are going to give what donors want to give to, but are we advocating for the true needs or are we just kind of settling for what is an easy gift to land or an easy project to launch when we really know that skeleton's over in the corner and nobody's doing anything about it? Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because as as a United Way organization, we're in a unique position where you know, we're not just serving kids. We're not just serving elderly. We're not just serving the homeless. We can look at it from every angle. Um, and historically, United Ways have, haven't done a good job of that. Historically, they've raised money and given to the same exact organizations that they've always given it to. Mm-hmm. Um, we were looking, you know, um, Rebecca Henderson with um, John City Press has been doing some history. Mm-hmm. And she posts a lot of the history of Johnson City. So she asked us to pull some history from United Way. And we've been around since 1930. Mm. And we pulled some old board minutes. And it was so interesting that the conversations that our board is having now, or was, I should say, a year ago, the same exact conversations they were having in 1930. Mm-hmm. They were funding the same exact agencies. Mm. And, and like you said, that poverty number hasn't moved. We're not doing our jobs right if that poverty number hasn't moved, yeah. you know? And so about a year ago, um, you know, when we changed directors, which was two years ago, but really we've gotten traction about a year ago and Alice Report helped 
give us even more traction. We took a look at what are we doing and how can we actually move the needle? Because we're not. If our if the Salvation Army is reporting to us that they're serving more homeless people than they were last year, what our programs aren't working. We've got to look at something that's going to work, not that's just going to put a Band-Aid on, on these issues. So we um, have actually, the board approved it at this last board meeting in April to change. Now, we're not changing our mission in a sense that we're still focusing on health, education, and financial stability. Mm-hmm. But we've, we're opening up the, the funding. We're no longer giving to the same exact 15 agencies that we've always given to. It's going to be a grant-funded um, application process. Any nonprofit can apply, and that's going to be our community impact fund. We're keeping our emergency fund, so we'll have that fund there. We're creating sustainability for the organization by creating an endowment. And then our other one, either a new nonprofit within the last two years that's opened or any nonprofit that has a new program. And it'll be kind of a competition. So we talked with um, Dr. Johnson. He's on our board. And we're going to kind of tailor it sort of like ETSU does. The so IBOX competition, the pitch competition? Yeah, yeah the yeah. pitch competition. Yeah. So, so nonprofits will be pitching, like, yeah. we do this, but we want to start a new program, or we see a gap in services, we want to pitch to get some money yeah. to start and respond to what we see as a need. Yeah, so it's like we've got to – especially when the Alice report came out, we don't want to see three years from now that Alice number being the same. If that Alice number is the same, we didn't, we, the million dollars that we raised had no effect. I mean, it it may have touched individual families and that's great, but as a United way, we need to be moving that needle. Our nonprofits are the ones that are able to help those individual families. And that's awesome. And that's, I mean, we have to have that. But as a United Way, we have to look at the whole community as a whole. We're not going to be just another nonprofit and hand out money. And so we're making the nonprofits that we we are supporting. We have a homeless task force to make sure that our agencies aren't duplicating services. We have an after-school network task force to make sure that we're providing for all the kids that need after-school care and that those after-school cares are sharing ideas and collaborating with each other. They had an idea, that that group had an idea, what if we bought supplies in bulk? What if we bought cleaning supplies and toilet paper in bulk? Now this was, of course, before all this. And we, sh- and we can get a decreased price yeah. and share it. I mean, we're all doing the same thing. Yeah. Why don't we just buy things, you know? So it's ideas like that, that we can, we have the opportunity to f- facilitate that. kind of innovation and community effort. And so we're, we're moving in that direction. We're getting away from just giving handouts. We've done that way too long. Yeah. And that, you know, coming back to the topic of blame, I mean, I, I'm a part of the system. I'm a part of the community. I'm a part, you know, I'm a fundraiser. I raise dollars Mm -hmm. to try to help solve problems. So if, if we're in a world where things aren't working, then, the beginning of that change is me acknowledging, well, 
what am I contributing or not contributing? What do I need to change if I want a different result? And so I, I think this climate, this pandemic, this time in our lives gives us the opportunity to basically ask that question. And I hope that there'll be a lot of folks having these kinds of conversations and these kind of deliberations in their own minds and mm-hmm. thinking about how they spend their money as an individual or as a family to the way churches spend their budgets, to the way nonprofits spend their budgets, to the projects that they launch and the things that they choose to do or not do. And then obviously that that trickles up to the people we elect and policy, whoever is going to be serving on the Johnson City Commission, all the way up to state representatives, to national representatives. We all have an opportunity to examine and kind of say, not interested in blame, but what has been working and what's not working and what can we do to change to be more efficient, better stewards with the, the resources that we've been given to make sure that we are, if we're blessed and have had um, the opportunity to be successful, to recognize that we didn't do that all on ourselves, but people helped us get there. And how do we pay that forward by helping other people who we come into contact in this life to help them thrive as well? And I appreciate you taking the time to come on and share with us about the work of the United Way. Um, It's been a lot of fun just to catch up. I'm glad you are over there and are part of a great team doing really good work. I'm glad it was your dogs barking in the background. That'll come through. (laughs) Sorry about that. And not mine. Never fails. Um, So next time I'm sure it'll be mine. But thanks for your heart and for all the good work you do. And thanks for taking some time to chat with us. And I look forward to talking with you again soon. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. It was a lot of fun. It was. All right. Take care. Please take time to check out the show notes where there are a variety of links, including the Unlocking Us uh, Brene Brown podcast interview with Ibram X. Kendi, who I mentioned in the introduction as well as the website for the United Way of Washington County, Tennessee, as well as the Northeast Tennessee Southwest Virginia Relief Fund, uh, where you could find more information about making donations to uh, the COVID-19 crisis response funds. Uh, We'll also include a link to the ALICE reports that we talked about in depth, as well as to the ETSU College of Nursing and Clinical and Rehabilitative Health Sciences, CASA, and the Tightrope uh, book that Leslie mentioned. So lots of good resources that came out of this conversation. Remember that you can find us on our website and listen to future uh, podcast episodes on our website, which is www.unleashedgenerosity.org. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. If you're an Apple Podcast listener, I'd appreciate you taking some time to do a rating and a review, which might help some other folks who are not familiar with the podcast find it. And finally, the music that you've been hearing throughout the episode is from Daniel Cooper, the song Be Yourself in Love. You can find more of Daniel's music at danielcoopermusic.com, and that's Cooper with a U. Thanks so much for tuning in, and until next time, unleash your own generosity. Slow down, you don't gotta change the world
gotta be someone, just gotta be yourself and love. Would you hurry up and slow down? You ain't gonna save the world. You don't gotta be someone, just gotta be yourself and love. Just gotta be yourself and love. Just gotta be yourself and love.